Hello, I'm Tim Nostrand. And I'm Brian Reynolds. The CEO and CTO, respectively, of Information Technological Holdings, and this is the Information Podcast. We're spending a couple months here in New York on our way from Wellington out to San Francisco. New York definitely has sort of a different vibe than both Wellington and San Francisco, and we're out here trying to figure out exactly what makes the New York startups have their own competitive advantage. Absolutely. We're trying to meet with entrepreneurs in New York, learn what they're doing that gives them an edge, so we can prepare ourselves for the next phase of our journey. We figured we should make this a podcast so that you could learn along with us. If you or anybody you know is a founder, a thought leader, an investor, somehow involved in the startup space and has something unique and interesting to contribute to the conversation, go ahead and email us at informationtechholding at gmail.com. We'd love to have you on the program. Absolutely. And since this is our first episode, we figured it would just be the two of us. And uh, we're not interviewing anybody today, but uh, I hope you enjoy the episode and stick around. That brings us to our first segment, Interesting Industries. Today, we are looking at the youth market, right? Now, a lot of people, when they talk about the youth market, they set different age boundaries. We're going to be pretty inclusive here, and we're just going to be including anybody under the age of 14. So this is markets, this is industries. Uh, So these are companies that are going to be focusing somehow on that age group, whether they're directly targeting them as the intended audience or whether they're more for parents of those children. Uh, we're going to be looking at sort of both sides of this market. Absolutely. And this is going to be a reoccurring segment on our show where we just take a look at a market, an industry, and we start to see what are the different categories of startups that are disrupting this space? What are the kinds of things that are going on here? And what can we learn from that that can be applied elsewhere? So, Brent, why don't you kind of take us through this? You, You mentioned already that there are different categorizations for this industry, but... Uh, there, there are specific buckets that you have. Yeah, so the three main buckets that I see for uh, the general space is, first, things that target children directly. Okay. And so this is going to be games and communication apps that the children download sort of of their own volition. Uh, another group here is basically just taking... Uh, existing technologies that are typically marketed to adults and finding some way to specialize it or adapt it to Mm -hmm. the children market. Usually that comes with some new and interesting value props along with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then finally, we've got the things that are targeting parents more directly. Sure. And so this is going to be things like educational apps. It's going to be things like safety apps where clearly the person making the purchase decision is actually the parent. But at the end of the day, it's because of the child that the actual need exists. Okay. And uh, so so what's an example? Let's take a look at that first bucket there. Um, this is the, the games the for children. I suppose what's the difference between a, ch- a child game and an adult game? Okay. You know, for instance, Bejeweled. Uh, my father plays Bejeweled Blitz just as much as I can imagine a child playing Bejeweled Blitz. 
Are there games that are specific for children? So there definitely is a sense that uh, some games may target a younger market directly. They may have certain you know, goofy cartoon-type elements to it mm. uh, that make it sort of more appropriate for children. Sure. Maybe things that can make the parents feel a little bit more comfortable that their kids are playing it. But in general, what we're looking at is something that sort of just develops naturally as the process of this ecosystem plays out. Uh, so one of the dynamics at play here is that children being in the phase of their growth and their development mm -hmm. are much more willing to explore and much more willing to try new things. Oh, that's right. You know, when I download a new app, it's because of word of mouth. You know, it's, it's very rare that I look at, I just look something up and download the first thing that comes back. You know, and at the at the very least, I'm getting an app that's on the front page of wherever I download my apps. Yeah, so children, they're much more in sort of like a discovery mode. Mm -hmm. They're using their devices into a world, like as a as a window into this sort of universe of things that could be. And so they're much more willing and much more free to mm. find these new things. It's something that we've seen with our company, Snappleganger, mm. where a lot of the people coming in and using it and sort of spreading it is the children. Sure. The most obvious one here is Snapchat. Uh, uh, Snapchat sort of came to dominance as a means for, you know, tweens and teens to sort of communicate with each other at school in such a way that it didn't leave permanent traces that their parents could then audit. And obviously that raises certain uh, behavioral uh, issues that we, uh, you know, our Snapchat is still trying to figure out a way to filter out unwanted messages from team to team. Sure, but I don't think that's necessarily the responsibility of companies, of applications to be doing that. At the end of the day, I treat applications more like paper. You wouldn't blame paper for death threats that are written on paper. All they're doing is they're serving as sort of a technological conduit for people to accomplish goals. And at the end of the day, mm. the responsibility lies with those children and it lies with their parents. Not the apps themselves. It is true that I used to write uh, risque messages to my girlfriend on my TI-83+. plus. Yeah, would you blame TI-83 for that? Absolutely not. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this next bucket here. That would be the apps that are built based off of existing apps for adults. Yeah, so a lot of times uh, you see this in sort of the international market. You see it in market for children. Uh, it's a common model. It's where you take something that has proven successful in one space and try to adapt it to another space. Okay. Oftentimes when we're talking about you know, the market of children, there are certain unique needs. Uh, one specific unique need, uh, they don't have their own money. A lot of the times what we're looking at is sure. children who have access to the spending power of their parents but they're fundamentally limited in the way that they can access that. Sure. And so we've got applications like Hopskit Drive and Zoom, which are essentially Uber targeting children. And the way that they operate is by creating a sort of a funding pattern and a permissions model that's appropriate for children. I see there. Uh, we've got other situations where the actual end use case is slightly different. Mm -hmm. So we have Soapbox Labs, which is essentially like an Alexa sure. for connected children's devices and things like that. So you can make specialized children's games that are voice enabled. 
And we've got Kiddo, which is a sort of a Fitbit for children. And there's certain special elements of Kiddo that make it very appropriate to that insofar as parents can monitor what their kids are doing. Sure. The reward systems are a little bit different, but ultimately they're encouraging the same kind of healthy habits. You know, and what's interesting here is I I, I recall there there's a, an application uh, that no longer is called this. It was called Yellow, which was more or less a Tinder for children. And I really liked that. It was, an, it was enabling children to find Instagram friends uh, by swiping left or right. And it just, it introduces children to technology that's current so that they can continue to grow and take what we have and go further than that. I think that's the, the narrative of humanity is, is you're going to take the most recent technology and then build upon it. And how else are we going to do that if we're not giving children access to technology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard, you know, there's definitely a lot of concern coming from certain people. I know in, an, in a future episode, we're going to be talking about the uh, phone addiction market. Absolutely. It's a very exciting market. Uh, and we actually see a couple of those for children as well. We oh. see an app called Unglue, which okay. is designed to sort of remove people's attention from sure. their phones. Uh, and specifically for kids. Uh, but what I like to think is that, you know, the purpose of play we learned from developmental psychology is ultimately sort of like a flight simulator for life. Okay. The skills that we learn when playing are ultimately the skills that we're going to need as we grow up. And Absolutely. as our society transitions to one that is much more digitally focused, giving our kids these skills early on is going to be critically important for their success. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so why don't you walk us through that final bucket there? I know you already kind of touched upon it with the uh, kiddo, the Fitbit for children, mm -hmm. but this final bucket, which is apps that are targeted towards parents and they're kind of coming from a safety or wellness or education. Yeah, aspect. so here you're going to see a lot of things. Now, naturally, uh, if you're a parent, I'm, I'm not a parent and I'm never going to be, but I can sort of understand the drive behind it. Uh, parents are very concerned for the safety of their children. Understandably. Uh, I can only imagine how frightening it is to lose your kids in a crowd. Something like that could be absolutely terrifying. And so you see applications that are just sometimes built into the phone. Uh, Apple has a lot of features for finding your kids, you know, if they go missing Find or whatever like that. Yes. Uh, but there's also something called Social Shield. Okay. And Social Shield is basically there to, you know, monitor a kid's use of social media mm. to make sure that what they're doing, you know, falls within the category of acceptable behavior. Like we were talking about before with the risks of Snapchat. Uh, it's definitely a situation where I think it falls on the parents to be monitoring this sort of thing and figuring out what their kids are doing and making sure that they're doing the right thing. You know, this actually brings up an interesting point. You know, someone might have the question, uh, why, why do I care about the youth market? Okay, it's going to go away. Well, first of all, something, something that's very important to remember at all times is the youth market will always be there or else there's going to be a crisis for humanity, uh, like in Japan, I guess. Okay, number two uh, is that it wasn't that long ago, speaking of Social Shield and Snapchat, but, that people were poo-pooing Facebook. They thought that it was just some stupid website for kids. Now all of a sudden, you know, Facebook is one of the most powerful companies in the world. Uh, they, they've got their fingers in VR. They've got, their, they've got space, if I'm uh, reading these Senate hearings correctly. You know, and 
I actually even remember when I uh, correctly said we should be investing in Facebook at the IPO. And uh, I mean, that worked out well. Facebook, wow. I remember you were talking about that back, you know, in the beginning at the IPO. Those holdings must be really valuable today. Let's just say that I'm number one in my market watch fantasy stock league, okay? So you you didn't actually use any of your own money? Uh, at the time, I was not in a place of financial security, but I did give the tip to my father. And with some persuading and cajoling, he did uh, invest. And so things are going pretty well for him. And uh well, you know, I I suppose that's something to be proud of. Yeah, I, uh, I I thank you for your your pride. But going back to this, you know, the the youth market is not one to ignore. And I mean, here's another example in terms of youth. Uh, I'll call this um, uh, mind capital. Okay, nostalgia is such a powerful tool. I mean, look at how many Marvel movies there are. Look at how many Disney. Uh, um, Star Wars movies there are, and you're gonna you're starting to see the power of getting ideas in a young person's mind. You know, for instance, uh, Bill Nye. Okay, Bill Nye, the science guy. He's actually an alum of the school we dropped out of. Alumnus. Well, I it, uh, alum is short for alumnus. Well, in, in in Latin, alumnus is the is the term. I don't think alum is actually a word. In Latin. No, I mean it, it's an it's like an abbreviation. There's no abbreviations in Latin. Okay. So my point is that he has this TV show that appeals to the youth market. Runs just a couple of years. It establishes him as the science guy. Okay, he disappears, don't know what he does for the next 10 years or so. Now all of a sudden, he's on the scene. He's writing books, he's showing up on talk shows, making documentaries. And there's a whole generation, millennials, people who want to listen to him because he is the authority on science. Yeah, I mean, it's a really impressive brand. And though I can't totally agree with his message, Mm. uh, I think that what he's done with his brand and the way he's been able to capture that sort of nostalgic market share has been really impressive. And I think it does point out this important idea that one unique element about the youth market, one that's totally unique to it, no other market has it, is that it's slowly becoming the old market. That's right. It's slowly becoming adults. And so if you can latch on in some way and build important habits or build that important mind share when somebody's young, you can then take advantage of it later on. And that can be incredibly powerful. Absolutely. And this is a a market that we definitely want to touch upon in a future episode, the climate change market. Climate change market, totally right for disruption, totally right for exploitation. Absolutely. I would love to talk about it, but not here. Not now. Okay, so we've covered there are three main buckets in the youth market. They're all very active. They're all very exciting. We understand why we care about them. Are there any other takeaways here, Bray, for our listeners? So things to think about, morsels. Yeah, I mean, I think that the key element here, the most important thing that we see, is that there's a lot of emotional reality to raising children Uh that is such a powerful and unique uh, human driver Mm -hmm. that I think there's always going to be some very important energy here. 
Okay. And so we're always going to be able to find these little morsels of places where, you know, we can make some existing process just a little bit better and then we can profit from that. You know, and what I want to say additionally here is that there wasn't really a market for many of these children-specific apps even five years ago. It's the prevalence of smart devices making them even cheaper and cheaper and more ubiquitous that even children can have them. I could see in the next five, ten years, people are going to be giving their kids devices at an earlier and earlier age. I think that this is going to be one of the bigger markets as those technologies begin to develop. So this is a good time to start acquainting yourselves with who the major players are. Definitely. And I think that uh, I'd love to bring some of these players onto our program. If you or anyone you know is a founder of somebody in the youth market space, send us an email. That's informationtechholding at gmail.com. Now we're at the segment of our show where we would talk to our guest about their startup. And since we don't have a guest today, we'll be talking about one of our startups, Snapleganger. And speaking of the youth market, Snapleganger started as an app called Snaply, which was a response to the youth market and has since pivoted into the youth market, uh, making that very apt theme for this episode. Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Right. So Snaply uh, was originally a response to the success of Snapchat. Yes. We saw what was happening in Snapchat. They had just IPO'd and we were seeing tremendous value being created from the, what was ultimately a new medium of communication. But what was interesting about it and what our thesis was was that they had, through a series of intentional user experience decisions, alienated the entire population of people who were above the age of about 25. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, what they had discovered and what had made their application so uh, exciting to young people was that they made their user interface fundamentally opaque. Mm. There were a lot of gestures. There were a lot of new things that you could discover just sort of through experimentation. That's right. I remember when it was very novel to be able to use black and white for your drawing. Do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. they, they had introduced all sort of new features, new filters, new cool things, but they were all kind of hidden behind layers of discovery. You had to try things to get there. And ultimately, we found that older users found this experience uncomfortable. When older users use applications, they expect things to be predictable. That's they right. expect, I am going to do something in this application, and the thing that I intend to occur is what's going to occur. That's why the consistency of Apple gestures between different devices is so extremely powerful. It's why adults really rely on Apple for all sorts of needs. Absolutely. Apple has managed to train the users to behave a certain way and expect certain things to happen when they do so. And so that consistency of experience is something people find very comfortable. But then what we quickly found about this adult market is the quickest way into an adult's pocket is a child's hand. Yes. Ultimately, we noticed uh, when we actually analyzed the user behaviors, 
ultimately adults didn't seem to want to communicate with that way in the first place. And so we actually identified specific sets of features uh, that were gaining traction, and we noticed that the people who were using them were actually young people. And ta-da! Pivot time. So we decided to focus on one particular filter that used facial recognition to pair you with a person who looked very similar to you. Mm. We had called the feature Snappleganger, and so we renamed the application Snappleganger, released it on the App Store, uh, and now it's been downloaded by over 10,000 people. We're seeing explosive viral growth, and we're predicting somewhere on the order of a million Snappleganger's uh, in the next couple months here. And I, I just want to stress, you know, the takeaway here, like, obviously, when you're running a company, there are a million different major revelations you have on a day-to-day -day basis. But here, what I, what I want to stress is that we had a market that we thought we had, and then we had a market that was real. And it was only once we acknowledged the market that we actually had that we started to see success. And I think that that's a, a very important lesson for, for new entrepreneurs, for old entrepreneurs, recognizing the market you have. Yeah, so I'm reminded of the famous line uh, from McDonald's history mm. uh, when they realized that, in fact, they were playing in the real estate market That's rather right. than the food service industry. That's right. Understanding exactly what your assets are, exactly what market you're participating in, is the fundamental problem of entrepreneurship. And what Snappleganger is doing, you know, we're, we're pairing people together based on what they look like. You know, who are you going to trust more than somebody who shares certain facial features with you. You know, there's a certain phenomenon, social psychology. Uh, yeah, I believe it's called the mere exposure effect. That's correct, yes. And basically what it states is that you, if you're well acquainted with something or even just exposed to something, you're going to like it more. And so that's at the heart of everything that we intend to do to grow this app is trust. Totally. We're creating social experiences that uh, really just start from a premise of comfort, uh, a premise of understanding. Mm -hmm. We're actually working with a certain beverage manufacturer that I'm not going to name uh, <laughs> due to an NDA, uh, but we're actually going to be working with them to create a very specialized advertising program. That's right. Um, you know, in addition to being able to find celebrity lookalikes, which you can imagine the profit potential there, uh, this application is going to enable advertisers to actually in real time replace the faces of people in ads with actors who look like them. It's going to be revolutionary. Uh, it's, it's definitely these, this kind of interactive ad space is going to personalize ads on a level we haven't seen ever Absolutely. I think that the amount of valuable lift that's going to come from these sort of ad campaigns is just going to be incredible. Imagine, you know, not having to target your demographics of your ads to a specific location or a specific time, but being able to drill down to the specific facial features of a specific person. Now, now Brink, 
you are the CTO. You deal with the technology here. You know, you had created a suite of other uh, tools and advanced technology that we ultimately had to throw away. Was that a difficult moment for you in this pivot? One of my favorite things in the world is deleting code. Uh, I have a phrase that I use time and time again, build it twice, build it nice. The idea here is that the second time you build something, it's always better because you've learned everything that you learned from the first time around. And then you're able to use that knowledge to create something that fits not your perceived notion of what something is, but rather the actual facts on the ground, the reality of whatever you're trying to create. That's great. Build it twice, build it nice. So it wasn't a problem at all to just get rid of all those features. And ultimately, you know, we use Git, we keep all of the our old code around. That's right. And we've built some important machine vision and some important sort of facial recognition libraries that ultimately existed for some of the previous functionality sure. that we'll be able to use in the future if we want to. You know, and I just want to, I, I bring this all up just because, you know, it is so essential to uh, recognize when you have to pivot. And pivoting is just a natural phase in the startup life cycle. Uh, and it's just that I never, I never expected to pivot markets. I always expected that a pivot would have to do with, you know, a major functionality change. But here, functionality pared down and we pivoted fully from one group of people to the opposite group of people. And that, and that was a very interesting paradigm shift for me. Um, and I can, I can say, you know, with a little bit of authority, because it's happened, um, it, it's tough, but you know in your heart of hearts, you got to do it and you got to follow that. You got to follow that. Otherwise, what are you doing? And that wraps up the first episode of the Information Podcast. We hope you subscribe and stick around. This first season is going to be a real blast. We've got guests from all over New York City, some from the Bay, and even some from the other side of the world. So this is going to be really a fun, interesting, exciting journey, and I hope you join us. Uh, again, I'm Tim Nostrand. And I'm Brian Reynolds. Thank you for listening.